Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone, I'm Emma and this is How Long Have You Got, the Identity Podcast. When you first meet someone, the typical question is often, where are you from? And why shouldn't people be curious about your story? It seems like an innocuous question, but for many of us, it's a loaded one. Often we respond by saying, how long have you got? Because can we really pin it down and does it matter? I'll be speaking to some great people who are quite simply doing great things. People from all walks of life who are willing to share their stories. Of life, of love, of work and more. We'll see where the stories take us and the depths we reach or the heights we attain. Grab a drink, get your walking shoes, or just find your space. How long have you gone? Welcome to this week's episode of How Long Have You Got? The Identity Podcast. We've explored some interesting and varied topics so far, ranging from the power of the human breath in discovering one's sense of purpose to sex in relation to the ownership of self. Now, the topics themselves are wide ranging, but they all contribute to our understanding of what it means to be our individual selves and who or what we really are, both now and in the future. I'm really looking forward to today's episode, not least because we have an incredible guest who will be sharing her story and thoughts on the topic, but because it touches on a theme that so many of us will be able to relate to, but perhaps haven't given much thought or at least spoken about. We'll be welcoming Claire Velotti, Vice President of the International Business at Snapchat, to explore the connection between identity and language and its link to the pursuit of achievement, both on a professional and personal level. Like myself and my co-producer B, Claire comes from a multinational family and doesn't struggle in answering the question, who are you necessarily, but rather, where are you from? So how exactly does language contribute to our sense of belonging and identity? Let's find out. Claire, welcome to the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to uh, be part of it. Oh, good, good. So, so Claire, tell me, you grew up in, in King's Cross in London. Um, tell, me, tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, it's, uh, it is how long have you got, literally. Um, my <laughs> mother is uh, kind of, you know, I, was, I always go blood-wise. I don't know why I say that, but that's just how I sort of define it. It's half French, half Italian, but was born and raised in France and only left France when she married my dad, who is second-generation Italian, born and raised in the UK, actually in London. Um, So that's sort of my sort of genetic background in terms of where my parents are from. And then my parents, when they got married, actually um, lived in Sidcup, Kent for a a few years. And then when I was two, they they moved, made the big move to London, King's Cross, which was not very glamorous at the time, uh, to basically build a business uh, which was a bed and breakfast in the heart of King's Cross which I grew up in so I'm definitely uh, got this sort of I'd say complicated but I suppose uh, interesting background. Uh, absolutely well complicated is a key word there um, but it sounds like you had a very, very a very nice background um, you know growing up in a in a and b um, what were some of your fondest memories growing up? That's a 
have. It's, they're all fond, actually. I'm like, when I think of my childhood, I, I think of it in a very positive way. I actually see it as I had the most privileged childhood. And what I mean by that, we're so obsessed like with educating our children of like, you know, especially making them sort of textbook smart. But what I had took for granted was probably I was having the best time of my life growing up. I have a sister who's two and a half years older than me that, you know, was my best friend, still my best friend. And we were sort of always a pair. Um, and I took for granted, you know, I was I, I was living in my parents' business, so seeing my parents work round the clock seven days a week. Uh, King's Cross, as I mentioned, uh, is a great place today, and it's always been a great place, but at the time, it wasn't what it is today. It was a real mixed bag of different types of people and uh, really reality of, of life. You know, we talk about diversity. I mean, you couldn't have had more diverse worlds in King's Cross. Um, and there was a lot of the other hoteliers all had children. So, and then there was um, some of our friends who are still very good friends of ours. They had a pub in King's Cross. So, so we had this community um, of people that were all quite similar in terms of lots of them were from different countries, their parents and had moved to the UK and we had our own community, but equally, you know, I would go to school and I was very privileged to go to um, a school in St. John's, Bridge, which is a private school, uh, but equally uh, in the day, hang out with, um, at the time, there was a lot of homeless families that stayed in our hotel. So really mixed with people that, you know, had it harder. Like, really, I, I saw real life and, and, and without realising, had the best education of my life and realised how I, I saw my own privilege very early on in my life, which I think most children never see. Let's be candid. That is their norm. And I realised I was lucky. I had a mum and dad who were to, together. I had a lot of, you know, able to have a lot of material possessions I had a lot of love I had a, you know an easy childhood um so I yeah I just have such fond memories we used to there used to be a squaring well there still is a square in King's Cross Argyle Square and there's a park and I spent probably wouldn't do that these days but every school holiday just playing in the park with with the all our friends who were part of the community so yeah really really fond memories it's weird no one's yeah. ever really asked me that question so I sort of just had to take a moment um <laughs> But yeah, I only have amazing memories of my childhood. And, and that includes my parents making us work in the hotel, like polishing the taps very early on, cleaning the rooms. You know, we, we helped out. But that just was such a positive experience. Well, it's, it's interesting because you speak about, you know, the education of life, um, which I think is very, very important. Um, how, how, do you, how do you feel that um, some of these memories and and your background have contributed to to where you are today they've completely defined me actually I wouldn't even say contributed in um, any interview I do with anyone I get asked a lot about my values I go I, I, I go straight to my parents straight to being raised um, in the hotel um, because I learn really the values of and I always talk about this. I, I laugh because in the corporate world, and I use it as well, so I am, I am guilty of using this word authentic, and I, I, we should ban it because it's just so false that mm. we go around going, we're authentic. It's just the irony of it. Um, but my parents are the most authentic people you'll ever meet, and they don't know that they don't go around going, I'm authentic. But um, I realised being raised in, a, in, in that environment, seeing your parents in action and seeing how, like, just... I just got raised the values of I wasn't better than anyone. You just be 
be who you are. My dad would be cooking the breakfast and then drop me off in my, you know, very nice school, um, you know, in his apron and slippers. And he couldn't care less. Like, what, why should he sort of change to drop me off at the school <laughs> gate? There was, although there would be other families coming in very flash cars and, and there was none. And I, I got taught values, you know, everyone is equal and genuinely you know we were the children of the owners and we were expected to clean the rooms and muck in like anybody else we weren't treated differently and so I think about my parents and that environment a lot equally the environment of appreciating your privilege and I know a lot of people go around recognize your privilege again that's another saying that needs to be banned like like it's just I saw it firsthand and I think that is how you shape a strong value system. And it's the thing that keeps me up at night about my own children. Because, of course, you know, I know their privilege, you know, that they're very fortunate to have a lot of things, a lot of love around them and so on. But that is normal to them. And I'm not sure how I teach them. That isn't just something that you that everyone no. gets. So, yeah, I know I'm giving you really long answers because it's quite thought provoking. But that is the truth that it's completely defined who I am as a person. No, but I think, you know, it, it's it's certainly a point that I can resonate with. I mean, um, my father is English, mother's Swedish, and um, both of them had jobs that took my sister and I all over the world. Mother was a diplomat, father was a civil engineer. So we also lived a very privileged life. My sister and I were able to attend private international schools. We lived in places like Malaysia and Egypt. We had drivers, we had cleaners, we had cooks. Um, but my God, you know, make no mistake, my parents made damn sure that we woke up in the morning, made our own beds, you know, would come back, do the dishes for, for, for principle. You know, we, yes, we had the help, but, um, you know, that we were living in a bubble in many respects. And my parents wanted to make sure that we, when we came back to the real world, um, whether that be, you know, we were sent off to university, that we knew how to take care of ourselves and how to you know, appreciate being in different situations. So, so I can, I can totally relate on, on, um, on these memories and the backgrounds actually defining who we are rather than contributing as you, as you rightly say to who we are. So, um, for many of our listeners and, and myself included, um, we come from multinational and multicultural backgrounds and you identify by your own ratio as three quarters Italian and a quarter French but you haven't grown up speaking either language, which you know, for some might be identifiers of belonging to a particular place. So when we speak about language and identity, what, what does that conjure up for you? Um, as you were saying it, I know you weren't saying it to criticize me because I offered that up when we were chatting earlier the other day, is I feel ashamed, actually. Oh, God, what did I say No, now? no, I feel totally ashamed uh, yeah. because... Um, I've always yeah. gone, and, and this whole bluff thing, I do not know from a young age, I've always gone, I've got blood, three quarters uh, Italian and a quarter French blood. I don't know why I have this mm. thing about blood. Um, but that's how he <laughs> described it. And then I felt like, oh, no, I'm going to get caught out because now they're going to start. And, th and this is what often would happen. Someone would then start say, you know, saying something in French to me or Italian, and I would just cringe and go, oh, this is where I have to now own up and go, I can't even speak the language. How can I go around saying I'm Italian and French? So I have struggled with that, actually, because I am... Um, as much as I love being British and living in the UK, and I'm a, you know, I'm a British citizen and I love everything about this country, um, I equally realised a lot of my culture wasn't British because when you have a mum that my mum was very sort of dominant and sort of, um, I 
think like a lot of mums do, they shape a lot of your culture. So do fathers, of course. Um, but my mum, little things, like she'd make a French dressing. And I know that's such a small thing. And, and when I went to, and also living in London, you forget, it's very cosmopolitan. There are a lot of people from all different parts of the world. But when I went to university where I met people that were more British, who lived outside of the London and probably more um, culturally, what you sort of stereotypically say would be British... I remember they were watching me whip up a French a vinaigrette with Dijon mustard. They they looked at me and laughing, like, what are you doing? And I did thought that's what everyone did, like, I had a French dressing, because that's what was normal. So I have often not had a lot of yeah. English ways, I suppose, because I wasn't... Remember, my mum lived in France till her adulthood, so she's very French, still has a French accent to this day. Um and even my dad, although he's second generation, he's a, a, a bit of a chef and has always been sort of cooking a house and he cooks very Italian food. So those things were the norm, like French baguette with like your meal, all of those things. <laughs> um, and I just remember my friends at uni th- thinking I was different, like strange. And um, But this struggle yeah. I've always had with almost feeling ashamed to say I'm not, I'm Italian French because I don't speak the language because I do think language is sort of, almost a proof point of you coming from somewhere else because even if if you're not if you speak let's say Spanish but you're not Spanish or or from anywhere in the world that speaks Spanish it's sort of then you go well how did you learn it and often someone's lived somewhere they've married someone or something's happened and I always feel almost like that's my sort of oh no moment where I I feel a bit like I've let myself down that I don't speak languages and, and what I hate even more is that my kids don't speak other languages because I kept saying I won't do that with my children. And before you know it, it's played out. And my husband's, um, again, born and raised in the UK, but originally Persian. So we have a situation where even more multicultural, which I love about our family, but yet my kids don't speak any of those languages, which um, is something that does um, Mm. upset me. But, you know, you, you can always live your life thinking about, you know, what if I've done that better, but never mind. Sure. Well, well, I think I think you know language and identity are so inherently interlinked. Um, but I also think the term identity is multifaceted. I mean, you know, you referenced your mother's um, French vinaigrette. Um, you know, you would occasionally whip up, um, just as you know, I will make my mum's Swedish meatballs at home. Um, but uh, what, you know, what does what does cultural identity mean to you? It is. I think in the if you'd asked me that years ago, I probably would have gone straight into my upbringing and how I was raised. But now I am forty two years of age. My life hasn't is is not defined just by my upbringing. I've obviously made my own culture in my own home, if that makes sense. I actually think culture is really yeah. formed around your home, your 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 sort of home environment. Actually, because if you think about it, it's those moral values. Then you go into culture of how you kind of, you know, the food you eat, how you um, communicate, all of those things start to kick in. So I think I'm, I'm, I've come to a place of acceptance that I suppose I am this sort of mishmash, this hybrid of multicultures. And so actually, I'd probably say I, I feel British. Persian, Italian, French is the truth, because I've had Persian influence mm. from my husband now, and we've been in together since we were 19. So, like, you know, I've always had a Persian friends. Um, 
so like you know we eat quite a bit of persian food and we celebrate a a persian new year like so there's lots that we do so actually that's probably when i think about culture i used to say i quickly go to uh country or nationalities but what i mean by that is it's a really multifaceted uh fascinated culture in the sense that it all looks very different actually and you can see my culture now is even different to my parents so how i cook in our household is actually different to how my parents cook now which is really weird um so mm. now yeah I, I i kind of i think it's actually my biggest privilege that i've got these different cultures going on and actually given my job is all about connecting with people whether it's clients or whether colleagues in the company me having an awareness of those different cultures um and understanding that different cultures shapes different behaviors and leads to different sorts of ways of being um, has really helped me in my job actually really helped me and I, I never thought thought mm. about it um, the only thing that doesn't help me is the French team do like to poke fun a lot about the fact my lack of French and I go on <laughs> meetings and everyone has to speak English for me which is shameful um, but yeah I, mm. I think it's actually a gift whereas before I felt it was a hindrance if that made sense because I felt like I can't just go mm. I'm British I used to feel this I can't just say I'm this whereas now I'm okay with that yeah yeah, yeah. No, that does make sense. And also, just to, just a sort of caveat, but I hadn't realized you've been with your husband since you were 19. That's, that, that's amazing. I think we almost need to do another episode <laughs> on the key to happiness and how to keep us alive because I could certainly learn a couple of things but there. It's a journey. Sure. Let's put it like that. It's a journey. Yeah. So, so you know, we've, we've made reference to foreign or second languages specifically, but I think language itself, so native English in your case and my case, also plays a key part in belonging and self-expression. How, how do you view language as a vehicle for the expression of your own identity? So the English language and how you... Um, great question. Again, <laughs> very thought-provoking questions that you don't often give much thought to. Um, <laughs> I'm actually quite protective of it. So I remember once I was in the US because I travelled the US quite a bit for pre-COVID for business and a cab driver was saying to me, you're from Australia and there's nothing wrong with being Australian but I was like, no, I'm British. Like, my accent's British. And almost I was like, is this not a British accent? It was almost I protected it. So, um, yeah, I feel quite proud of it and and I like it. I, I, I think when I think about being kind of native and I, I do love the fact I feel um I'm a Londoner I was raised in central London I went to school in Baker Street I I, I like that I, I I'm proud to say I am a Londoner and um I suppose if your accent or the how you speak is a representation of that then yeah I'm so protective of it because I often get asked or oh, where are you from I can't quite place you and you speak really quickly and you're um, and because I do a few um, sort of interviews or do my own sort of uh, show uh, uh, series, um, I've become very aware, actually, of even my body language because the, the hands move a lot, as you can see. Mm. Um, and that's definitely yeah. the Italian influence. And I can't get away from that. That is just and I think about my grandfather, who was who was Italian, but very like over the top Italian in his mannerisms. Um so it's weird, my, my British accent, I embrace it. I love it and I protect it when someone says it's from somewhere else. That's great. And I, I, I love this concept of, or this idea of feeling protective of, of your accent. I mean, I, again, I can totally relate because I used to be very embarrassed of mine um, because I thought it sounded 
very American. Not that there's anything wrong with having an American accent, but I'm not American. Um, but now I've, I've, I've grown to appreciate it because it's unique. It's so inherently unique to my upbringing from the different places I've lived and the international schools that I've, I've attended. So this is me. It's probably not going to change. Um, and I totally feel you on the gesticulations. I don't know where it's come from because I have no Italian influences <laughs> in my family, but my mom's forever telling me, what, what, where are these gesticulations coming from? But you know what? I'm just going to own them. So yeah. it is what it is. And I think you're absolutely right. I like, I like um, the idea of feeling protective about it. But I think a lot of people will find that perhaps they feel um, inadequate or not good enough in their life. And very often that is tied to performance or the perennial imposter syndrome or, or shame even. But for you, it's slightly different. You've mentioned that, you know, when we last spoke that you feel secure in answering the who am I question, but perhaps are a little bit wobbler, wobblier around the the, the where are you from culturally uh, question. So could you could you speak a little bit more on that and, and how it's impacted you? I think the where I am question is more related to what you touched on earlier is the language piece because I, I feel like an, an mm. imposter saying I'm from a certain country when I can't speak their language. And I think you get laughed at, you know. How can you turn around and say, you know, you're three-quarters Italian and you can't hold a comma? So I, I think it's very based in that more than about me being so confident about who I am. Because who I am is more about I, I go straight into sort of pose my comfort zone of I'm, you know, I, I don't define myself by any particular way, but I would say, you know, I'm um I've got three kids I you know live in Belsize Park I, I work full-time it it's all grounded in like what I do today in fact whereas where I am feels a little bit more of where I'm from and rather feels a little bit more like I've got to own up to this this thing uh, this this issue I have around language and I think that's what it's all about for me um yeah, I think that that's the distinction of why one is easier than the other for me. Do, do you think then that it's possible to make a connection from not feeling good enough to wanting to prove oneself? Yeah, I have always um, actually not feeling good enough wasn't around the language part for me in general. Um, I would touch if anyone's listening and says, why doesn't she just go and learn the languages? I should say I did do GCSEs and I would also say when your teachers know that you have a background of French and Italian and you're doing those languages it's really hard because the expectations are so much more and I lost so much confidence and actually it put me really off it all mm. if you've got if you've got a name like Velotti and you're sitting in a course doing Italian you know and I have to say to this day now and, and of course when I'm in France with my mum they can see she's a French speaker she's a native so then they look at you and if you try and speak French it's almost they look at you in, in disgust and it's so bad so I, I just want to sort of anyone listening thinking why you haven't just got on with that that's really what's held me back and you could argue it's an excuse but that's genuinely it just fills me with dread and I think I've got past why am I going to put myself yeah. in that situation um so I think that's very much um, that that subject I suppose for me but in terms of not feeling good enough I always I always went to great schools but I was not a natural academic I really struggled at school actually when I look back and it wasn't from trying I, I think my superpower has always been I'm really competitive really determined which I actually think in a way although you have to balance it with mental health and happiness but I really hope my kids have a bit of that in them because that's what serves you best in life you can be the, the brightest person in the room but if you haven't got mm. hunger it's not going to go far, particularly in life, mm. as we all know. Um, 
And so I, I felt this sense. And I remember my mum, and I think a lot of our, our parents, that generation did a lot of, oh, their friends' children, particularly when I talked about the community of King's Cross, there were some of the friends' children that were traditionally quite academic. And I, my mum would often go, well, so-and-so's doing well, or why do you have to be, like, different when I said I wanted to leave London to go to university and so on? And I always felt this need to prove that I was on this, I was going to do something great. Um, and I'm not saying I did anything great, but I think I did prove to myself, if I look at um, a lot of, you know, people that I would traditionally say at school were really academic, I've done as well. And, and, and it feels that gives me a lot of motivation. And actually someone said to me the other day, I was talking to, to them about what drives me, what makes me like, what, what makes me proud. And it's, Jokes aside, it's literally calling up my mum and dad and saying, oh, because I did you see me? I was on Sky News doing an interview. And the pride that gives them, that, that it's those things. It's not having mm. a title. It's not, it's it's those things that, and giving them that pride, um, which I felt probably I, I didn't give them so much at school because I struggled. And, and to be able to show them, like, what I can do now, given they sacrificed a lot for my education, um, it's really a motivator for me and a real driver because I didn't ever feel like I was good enough. I was always trying my best to keep up at school. And yes, I went on to great universities. I got to ones. So I don't want to sort of play victim or anything, but it was always hard. I was never like, I always had all my friends always seem to just, they're always doing better. Sport was something that gave me a lot of confidence. And I'm a real believer in for, for children, find something that they can feel really good at because confidence, I think, is really important. Self-belief is really important. Not arrogance, self-belief. Yeah. No, I think that's 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 a, a key point. And sort of, you know, going back to confidence and like linking it to to language, you know, um, it's interesting this point you make about, um, you know, having an Italian surname and the expectation that you should naturally speak the language and you know having your uh, teacher sort of look down upon you you know before you even um start embarking on the class and for me it's the it's the um the opposite you know I'm I'm currently in Sweden but with a surname like Blackmore people automatically speak to me in English you know there's not even a sort of oh wait what oh you might speak Swedish no 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 it's just go straight in for the English so this whole, so I can relate from the from the other angle um even as a, as a native Swedish speaker but you know, I think as, as a woman in a, you know, high powered professional position, um, how do you see, or do you see language being fun, fundamental to your role? I think you mentioned before in past interviews and in our own conversation that you've been asked on occasions to, to tone it down. And for women who are in positions of, of leadership or, or perhaps any position for that matter, it feels like a lot of our language can often be monitored and wanted to be kept in in check um I don't know what your thoughts are on, on I mean on that. when I was I remember it was many years ago when someone said it'd be worth toning it down. And, and I don't know if it was because if I was a woman maybe genuinely that applies to to men as well like I was I was young I was quite bullshy <laughs> and I think what years of experience has given me is that with language you you can be very direct and I am I, I don't beat around the bush I think the corporate world can spend you know an hour you can spend an hour in a meeting and only get to the crux of it five minutes before it ends and I'm a real believer why would you do that let's let's go straight for the the difficult conversation first and that's always been the way I operate I think I've, I've learned in experience though I think you can be bullshit you can be all of those things but being thoughtful in your language because as you get, I think I, th mm. I do think experience tells you this that everyone hears your words and your language differently, and I think as you have um, get into more senior roles and, and you and someone gave me this advice, someone very wise, um, 
and you get into more of positions of authority in business, your language makes even more impact. And I think you have even more of a responsibility to be really thoughtful about it. So I remember years ago, I might say something flippant, like I would have said, so and I manage, oh, I think that needs a bit of work, but just in passing. And you and I've forgotten that person's gone away and lingered and gone, oh, I did, she did she just think I didn't do a good job. Like, and then come back to me maybe a week later and go, well, can you build on that? I've really been thinking about it all week. And I'd be like, oh, wow, I didn't even think anything of it. As you go further in your career, you have to be thoughtful because people really do listen to what you say. Uh, maybe some of people listening who maybe work with me might disagree. Um, but in theory, people do listen. <laughs> and I think everyone hears language differently. So I, I'm a prime example of someone. If I'm in a room and someone gives me three positives and three negatives, I have heard three negatives and walked away, not even heard the positives. My husband, on the other hand, would have heard the three positives. And I don't think it's just male and Jeff. It's just we are different characters. And, and we'll often go to appointments around our children yeah. and parents evening. And I come away going, we've got to do this. He goes, did you, have you not just been in the same meeting I've been in? So I think it's an awareness of how people receive language is really important. So be as bullshy as you want, but be aware of that because language can hurt language can drive uh, negative thoughts for people it can slow them down but language can equally make someone go from being in a really bad place to a really positive place so i think language is incredibly powerful and i that's why i probably emphasize when you are in a bigger role of management or leadership you therefore have even more responsibility to use it wisely yeah i think it's such a good point um you know um and certainly a takeaway that I will bring into my own my own life. So thank you for that um, piece of advice because I think we we all need to be more thoughtful in our language. It's I think language is very open to interpretation, and in some respects, I feel like there should almost be a course in how we converse because we've never really been taught how to. Yeah. Right. We're born. We learn how to speak, and that that's sort of it. And then you sort of develop your personality and and. Um, but it would be an interesting... But equally, I don't think I would want a course because I think that's what makes the world interesting. Yeah. You know, and, and I oh, I yeah, think it's yeah. I think it's more about being more self-aware is the key. And that's not just language, that's in general of your behaviours yeah. and language is a part of that behaviour. I would actually, I wanted to add another point on language. Yeah. More and more companies out there are global organisations. And if I take my company, you know, everyone in other, lang in other countries where... Uh, English is not the first language that they're expected to, to converse in English when we're doing kind of internal meetings or even global client meetings. I, I have become very aware of language in that regard that I often am very thoughtful about don't judge someone when they're trying, you know, they're speaking a second language, business second language. And I've really tried to learn to be really thoughtful about that and actually really respect it because I sit there and go, and they all sometimes apologise for their, 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 their English not being great. I'm like, no, you're extraordinary. You're doing, you know, a business meeting in another language. That, for me, only gets you respect. But equally, I often tell colleagues sometimes who don't think about it as much if we're doing training courses or evaluating people, please be mindful. This person is not their first sex. So if they come across, sometimes certain cultures might say words that just come across as, oh, that's a bit direct. Well, no, it's just they're translating a word in their head. So actually, language, actually, in my day-to-day -day yeah. jobs become a really made me very aware actually of that different dynamic which i would argue all global organizations should really be thoughtful about yeah absolutely no i think a very good very good takeaway um you've mentioned your your husband a couple <laughs> times in, in this conversation which 
he's he's Persian, and so you have a beautiful and wonderfully diverse household in in your hands at the moment, and three kids to enjoy it with. What what would you like to impart your kids with when it comes to cultural identity, pride, language, and and generally self assuredness? Um. I should correct one thing, actually, because at the beginning you introduced me as Claire Velotti, which is the name I use at work, but my legal official name is Claire Noriala. Um, but for this, but like in terms of like my external, I suppose, <laughs> industry stuff, but I always think he goes, why are you Claire Velotti again? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, do you know what I'd really want to impart my children with? Because I think this is their gift, their superpower. Embrace different cultures. I think life is amazing. Like I, I love living in a city where... I walk down the road and I hear different languages. We were in the glamorous Ikea on Sunday and there was two ladies behind us and I don't speak Farsi, no surprise, with my poor language skills, but I recognise it after all the years. And my eldest daughter does understand quite a bit and I could hear them and I said to my eldest, are they speaking Farsi? She was giggling, she got all embarrassed and was like, yes. Um, and I love the fact that wherever I go, every single day, somewhere when I'm walking around, I hear a different language. I, I can almost see a different culture, you know, because there are different mannerisms um, and people look all different. You know, I, I love it. And I think that is what I want my kids to not almost see different cultures. I almost just want to embrace that's the norm. And I think that's really powerful. And yeah. I think about this next generation and we talk a lot about obviously diversity. And for me, my big focus is inclusion because you can't have diversity without inclusion. I want my children to just have a by default, an inclusive mindset that they're not thinking they're being inclusive. It's just everyone, you know, my eldest daughter has some additional needs. I know it's not about different backgrounds, but you know, she is different. Like she, you know, she has her quirks and so on. And, and my five-year-old, who's a, the middle child, her, she doesn't see that as different. I, I talk a lot about, she said the best thing to me last night, I said, mm. you know, Ariana, you know, she was born early. So for things so hard of her, she said to me, why can't we just put her back in and let her, her grow for longer in your time? It's like, she's 11, a bit late for that. But, you know, and I love yeah. the fact that that is my family. It's this mix mash of different yeah. cultures, different ways of being. And I think that that gives me a lot of optimism for the world we go into, that all this DNI, which I say all this, I can, it's a great thing, but almost, I, I hope it's almost not needed because it's just that generation mm. will just by default just see the world differently. And, and I, I'm starting to see it in my kids and it, it makes me happy, actually. Like, they don't think anything of it. Yeah. Of this different land, like you go to mum and E's house, um, obviously in the garden obviously not we hadn't been for a while but you know they all speak Farsi and the food's different like they know at mum and e's house it's rice and certain dishes I'm stereotyping but literally they go to my parents house and nine times out of ten there probably would be pasta or it would be um or we go to France a lot because my parents got a house there like they, they don't think anything of it and I think that's fantastic yeah, it's interesting, you know, um, when you talk about your kids and sort of, you know, their optimistic look on the, the world or optimism for the world generally. Um, but I guess a bit of a, a divergent question here that is somewhat interlinked. What what keeps you up at night, Claire? I think it's privilege, actually, the, for, for me as a parent, that my kids think it is normal to have obviously I, I we have someone that lives with us who helps because when you work full-time with three children both of you work for you know I, I, I appreciate there are others that, that can't have this but we're very lucky we can you know um you know their lucky breakfast is made every day and and things and, and I 
do they do much to do chores around the house we, we try like I, I shout and like put the plates away do make your bed but they are still privileged there's no two ways about it and I that really worries me because I don't want privileged children mm. I want children that are in touch with the real world I want children that can interact with everybody from all walks of life um and I see it and maybe maybe not close friends, but like people in like, you know, over the years and I've seen them interact in the workplace where there's almost a privilege in them. They think because they've had maybe more of a privilege upbringing on education, they're almost better than others. And that for me is a, that is a, a non-negotiable in my household. I, and it will be a, a people mm. in my life if that's how they operate. I don't want them. I, I'm very black and white on that. No one is better than anybody. Um, and my biggest fear would be that if my kids ever look down on somebody else for having less would be a big issue like you can see I'm passionate about it yeah no absolutely like what are some of the things that um you you do at the moment or like some of the 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 things that you're instilling to make sure that your your children have this you know uh, open mindset um I don't um, I, I try and role model it just you know if again I'm fortunate mm. to have people that help us they're not treated any differently you know we just treat everyone the same everyone I think that's the best thing you can do is role model it I'm you know I, I think I'm not a fan of like going and I, I think it's great like everyone should be doing like charity work but I'm not going to force like let's go and do a lemonade stand and donate like that's almost feels like I'm trying to sort of promote their privilege I, I it's not about that yeah of course you should should absolutely do charitable work and contribute but it's more about how they see people that for me is really important. Like I, I want them to make sure that the lady that lives with us, they don't think of, of, of her as someone who works for mummy and daddy. You know, she's part of the family and we are all equal. And what she said, not, I'm not using her name because I feel a bit inappropriate to start uh, putting people's names into this. But like it, it's like if she tells them off or I tell them off, it's the same. They don't run to mummy and go. I remember once my yeah. child did say, I'm going to go to mummy. And I said, no, no, you go away. I'm not interested. She just said, um, no, and that's no. And that's the end of it. And I feel really strongly about that, that my yeah. children don't see a difference. And, and I think when I see it in others, it horrifies me. And that's why I'm so fearful of my children having it. It's almost that privilege when people go, I've helped someone. I went and did this. It's like, it's almost if you heard yourself. Like, it's great that you want to do yeah. good, but there's other yeah. ways of doing good. Like, start from a basic level of treating everyone Absolutely. equally, because we are all equal. Whatever we have, yeah. wherever we're from, we are equal. Well, it sounds like you've um, instilled some very strong and good values and qualities and morals in your children. So on that note, what no, would you I have like work to, to do our listeners with? <laughs> of course, I, I would... but, you know, this is life, isn't it? Constant work. Yeah. Constant work. I've really been reflecting a lot in like what this global pandemic has done, right? Like it just shows we are ultimately all global citizens. Wherever you're from in the world, when something like a pandemic hits, it affects us all, right? Um, however, unfortunately, it doesn't mm. affect us all equally because where you're from in the world makes a difference in how, how the, the country you're in can react and cope. And, and, you know, we just have to look what's going on in, in India at the moment. But I think as human beings, on a human level, we all have a responsibility to, like, do our best to make the world better. And I worry, actually, this is what I'm thinking about COVID a lot, it's made us a little bit more local, a bit more insular. 
because if you think about how we think about the world of like what does lockdown look for, like for us here or what's it like, like we've, we've started to think about oh my god if you're in the UK we can finally go to a restaurant outside but forgetting there are other people in parts of the world that are still having curfews and serious and I think it's made us very so I think I'm waffling mm. on with a long answer but it just made me think a lot about this global pandemic how it showed, but then equally we've seen so many acts of kindness but it feels it's we've become very local again actually ironically with a global pandemic and I encourage us to remember that I think it's important we do understand other cultures and like just be global citizens and good human beings ultimately um but the global pandemic showed up at almost like how's your how have you reacted in your country and, and I think that's a, a worry I I, I think the way the world's going, it's a hard place to be. And, and I think we have to think globally. And I think we have to ultimately think about being just good humans, wherever you are from, whatever your background is. Um, we have a responsibility and it's not about just, just donating and doing things, showing an interest about what's going on with other people in their lives, wherever they are in the world. So I know that's a very weird answer, but it's just things I've been reflecting on a lot. And the pandemic's really brought it to life. This was weird. Of, and also I spend my life talking about global and local yeah. in my work. I think it's a really interesting time right now. And I hope we go back to actually thinking more globally than about how we are in our being in our local setting. And I think COVID's caused it. Yeah, the global setting. <laughs> but I think um, I think it's a... Um a very uh, good point that you make and certainly one that I've been thinking about too. Um, I've certainly been thinking about what happens when, um, you know, lockdown restrictions are eased more and more across the world and how we as human beings um, actually take some of the learnings from the last year and continue to um, bring those into um, the, 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 the future and um, the, yeah. the new and I, world. And I think it will make us kinder, I should add. I, I do believe human beings hopefully be more thoughtful although I did hear about someone who went to a restaurant and complained recently and I was like how can you complain in a restaurant they've just been through like you know their businesses being on the brink uh, so but I, I do hope the majority of people will start to seeing a bigger picture yes yes I hope so too well what a great note to end this conversation on Claire it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today um so thank you very much and I look forward to staying in touch thank you for having me and I loved the thought-provoking questions it's a good way to start my day thank you for joining us for yet another episode of how long have you got the identity podcast I hope this episode has been as thought-provoking for you as it has been for us Claire has certainly inspired us to be more human and I think kinder stay tuned for episode six in two weeks time when we welcome Ben Freeman author of Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People, to talk about Jewishness, pride, and belonging. How Long Have You Got is hosted by me, Emma Blackmore, and co-produced with B. Pizarra Aparizio. Sound design by Billy Clark, music by The Amazing Parallels, and cover art by Milena DeLuca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all soon.